Welcome to this bonus episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. Uh, we're going to share with you some of the questions that we asked Science Mike during our live event. And in addition to the questions asked during our live event, we had an opportunity to meet with Science Mike the following day and ask a few more questions we didn't have a chance to answer. Enjoy. Uh, so if you are in the room, I know there's a couple mics uh, that are kind of floating around. Uh, Josh has got one there, looks like Aaron's got one, and Nick's got one in the front row. So uh, you can just kind of flag them down if you have a question. If you're online, uh, feel free to tweet at us or post on Facebook with the Sandbox Co-op hashtag. Or if you're watching on the live stream, you can check it out there. Cool, cool. Well, thanks, uh, Mike. And, and make sure that you raise your hands and, and keep the conversation going online, as, as Chris said. Uh, just... For starters, um, amazing presentation. By saying it out loud with a mic in front of a camera on your podcast and different venues that you talk, you're acknowledging doubts and questions as a part of the reality of living and as part of the reality of faith. And by doing so, you've tapped into something incredibly powerful. Hmm. It uh, simultaneously leads to hate mail from strangers and getting <laughs> blogged at. Uh, by somebody in their basement, uh, while others follow you like a guru. Um, why is naming, what, what is it about naming doubts and questions that's so powerful? So one thing is human brains have an innate desire for certainty. It's a bias. You can actually see in studies that if you present people with two pieces of information, one of which is correct and has evidence to support it, but is presented with an open door that there could be some of it's wrong, and the other is just blatantly false, but presented with confidence, this one gets picked most of the time, right? Like we desire certainty. And that desire for certainty tends to create um, institutions that rally around non-negotiable truths. Um, what we have today is a shift in consciousness that I believe is primarily driven by the fact that everyone can talk to everyone on the internet. Sure. And so you have data points that, that confront people's held narratives, but their fear of not only losing their personal certainty, but the social repercussions of threatening group certainty lead them to hide. And so all I do all my work is is saying every question's okay. You know, I have a question and answer show, and mm -hmm. it doesn't actually matter what my answers are. Um, I've been really disappointed in some of my answers, and I love that there's so many scientists and engineers that follow the show that when I get a data point wrong, Twitter tells me really fast. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't, all that matters is the question was said out loud. You're making space for questions. That's it. Yeah. And then saying that it's okay, we don't have to have all the answers in order to practice faith because we don't have all the answers to practice science. That's the whole point of science. We don't have all the questions answered just in life in general. Why is it we feel that when we get to like the biggest questions, why are we here? What are we going to do about it? That we feel like suddenly those have to be answered like resolutely, but we're okay with tension about where to go to lunch. It's, it's just right. a weird dichotomy. <laughs> nice. But you, you, you mentioned your, your show, um, uh, Ask Science Mike. What is, the, what is the most asked question that you get? What is the one that comes at you? They come in waves. Okay. Um, so, it, and, and what's weird for me now is the Ask Science Mike has probably got the strangest assemblage of misfit toys in an audience <laughs> you'll ever see because you have like, legit conservative evangelicals, you have progressive mainline, Catholics. There's some, some Islam represented in the shows, listeners, Buddhists, and a pretty significant agnostic, atheist, and skeptic followership. So with those groups interacting, there's some interesting dynamics. And what's interesting is, is I let them pick the topics for the show, what follow-up that creates. If I were to kind of look like trends over time, consistent questions, how can I talk about my doubt with my family without losing them? How can I talk about my family with my church or talk about my doubt with my church without losing my church connection? Mm -hmm. um, what do you believe about hell? I get that all the time. Uh, how do we know what happens when we die? Like really, those are sort of the meta questions. Um, lately, I've been um, getting more than anything else, like the last two months, uh, I've come back to faith 
but I feel different and I don't feel like I belong at my church anymore. Mm. How do I find a church that will let me follow Jesus? Mm. And that lately has been, and you'll see my work reflect that, right? Like if you look at the stuff I've blogged about lately, it's in reaction to those questions about finding wholeness, making peace with the church. And then, and then how do we have, so we, you know, somebody comes back to the faith, but they, you know, they, for example, they, they, can't, they can't buy hell right now. They just can't mm-hmm. do it. They can accept mm-hmm. God. They can accept Christ. They just are wrestling with the idea of hell. But, you know, they live in the South, and they're some conservative denomination. How do I survive Thanksgiving is a mm-hmm. question I get a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a question over here. Um, get and if a, I could get, get a, a bottle of water, that would be, like, awesome. This is a uh, the Corpus Lost. Yes. You talked about Um, is is that there's a lot of talk about gender in our society right now? Is that an interesting link there of how to look at the corpus callosum as a way of talking about gender? So on the one hand, like gender is a thing we made up, right? Um, biologically, uh, it's not nearly as binary as humans present it, and I'm not making social commentary. So wherever you want to go with that, go with that. Um, that said. It is incredibly difficult to tease out the difference between nature and nurture because most human societies have such rigid differences in gender and the societies that don't tend to be radically isolated and therefore fearful of sticking their head in an fMRI machine. I mean literally, right? So we have these matriarchal societies in some part of the world, but you can't like put them on an airplane and take them to a medical center and put them in an MRI. Uh, so, as far as we can tell, though, something like that corpus callosum activity is not societally driven. Um, in terms of the innate differences between men and women, we know men tend to be taller and stronger. We know they tend to die sooner because testosterone is a mild poison. Um, <laughs> it is. Biochemists can back me up. Um, and other than that, it really seems like, short of like reaching a higher shelf or lifting something a little heavier, men and women's innate capabilities are not radically different. We've got a little men, we've got a little bump in 3D spatial perception, it seems, in the brain, a little better at mapping physical space, women a little bit better at modeling relationships, but most of our radical differences, the things we fight about are socially conditioned, probably. We had another uh, question here. Okay. So, how can someone in good conscience ascribe fully to a worldview that contains beliefs and/or tenets that they don't fully understand or necessarily agree with? Um, why would it be desirable to identify fully with a movement, say Christianity, when in actuality um, there are only select aspects of it that are meaningful or even intelligible to that person? I always know I'm in trouble when the question is written down. It's like, I brought my A game, and I'm not going to miss my shot. I love it. Uh, so the question is, why Christianity? Like, the, you're talking about the Crusades, right? Um, you know, in our modern social context, I think most Americans will describe, in fact, we know most Christians describe, most Americans describe Christianity as homophobic, right? Bigoted. All these really negative terms, misogynistic, anti-feminine. Why on earth would we want to participate in this tradition? Here's the thing about belief systems involving humans. (laughs) They tend to get messed up, right? Anytime you insert um, a dynamic where humans can have authority over other people, that can be elected officials, that can be monarchs, and yes, that can be clergy, uh, we've found that we have a real bias to be psychologically warped when we have authority over other people. And I would challenge you to find institutions and belief systems that in their history have not involved some viciousness or brutality. Um, So because of that, I think, I think Richard Dawkins is a modern Jeremiah. I think the critique that secularists and atheists bring to faith is essential and necessary to cry out about the things that cause harm. But I am not optimistic, just studying history and brain science, that humans are capable of a utopian belief system. 
So I'm much more interested in ways we can pragmatically redeem human ideas than just tearing them down for the sake of tearing them down. In fact, I never tear something down unless I'm prepared to offer some alternative. Right now, I'm not saying no one should. That's a personal stance. Mm -hmm. I think it's necessary that some people say, this is just wrong. I don't know what to do about it, but it's wrong. Um, but I think at the core, a belief system that's based on putting others first, a belief system that's based on self-sacrifice, and a belief that biases you toward neocortical thinking and away from limbic thinking, it makes you uh, more like a human and, and less like a crocodile, uh, is a good thing. And frankly, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I can say those things unselfconsciously now. But even if I did not, I can't get around the fact that um, Christianity is the largest operative moral philosophy in our world today, uh, especially in the West. And so if you're going to drive social change, putting it in the context of Scripture, the Gospels, and a God that people accept, you can make action a lot faster than at first you have to convince them everything they know is wrong, and now they should do something about it, right? Uh, it's just pragmatism and the fact that uh, I'm weird and I feel like I once met God on the beach. So there's, there's always that part to it. It's a long story. <laughs> uh, actually, we'll go to online questions. I, I've yeah, so we got uh, this first question came in. Um, we've got a, a number of them we can grab two, but uh, the first one to come in was, do you think doubt is something that believers should strive to overcome, or do you think that it's something that we should always have in the back of, of the process? I am wrong about a lot of things. I just don't know which things. That means I always... In order to be healthy, in order to learn, I have to hold open the idea I'm wrong about things. I don't have a fence. There's no thing where I go, I'm absolutely certain I could never be wrong about this. Because I'm just not that confident in my ability to build a perfect model of the universe and hold it in 86 billion neurons. I mean, you know how many leptons are in this room? Nobody knows how many leptons are in this room. It's incalculable, <laughs> right? So I hadn't even heard the word lepton until it's now. It's a fundamental was... particle in physics. It's a physics um, so I got to hold open the idea that I could be wrong. At the same time, I think boogeyman doubt, the kind of stuff that like keeps you up at night on an ongoing basis and makes you feel depressed and makes you think like, oh, maybe I'll eat pizza for breakfast. Like that's not the good doubt. Like, a doubt that is um, inspiring you to learn and grow and change is good. A doubt that makes you want to stop learning and growing and experiencing life is bad. So I think I don't want to oversimplify doubt. Um, I don't have the kind of existential doubt I want to have. That doesn't happen to me anymore because, well, mainly I've stopped trying to be right about everything. That's no longer my goal. Instead, my goal is uh, to follow this Jesus I'm fascinated in and realizing, like the disciples, most of the time I'm really confused about what's going on. I mean, that's the funny thing. We freak out about doubt, but if you read the Gospels, it's literally 12 guys who are wrong all the time, <laughs> and Jesus loves them anyway. In fact, one of the guys was so wrong that he got Jesus killed. That's the that's the Gospels. That's the thing we rest our faith on. So if, if, like, if we say like the doubting and the confused can't be involved, then Peter's out. And now we have a problem because he's pretty you know, foundational in the whole church thing. Upon this rock, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think, I think we've got we've to take this faith from a, a set of propositions that we believe and then doubt to a thing that we do, that this faith is best put into action, put into practice, that all I know, who's a Christian, I don't know. All I know is I'm trying to walk behind Jesus, and I'm happy to walk with anyone else who is too. Yes. We 
Well, you mentioned um, in the presentation that um, the brain reacts differently to prayer versus meditation. I think is what you said. Can, can you expound on that, and why wouldn't Absolutely. meditation be as good? Uh, medita- meditation, if meditation is a box, prayer's in that box. So when I say prayer, I'm talking about a type of meditation, right? So praying to God is one type, and like mindfulness meditation is another type. Now, the great thing about science is you can compare anything, Right? You could compare ball bearings to pineapples. Like, I don't know why you would, but you could build a data set and then draw conclusions from it. And so what you see is there's different advantages to different types of prayer and meditation. Now, all types of meditation, including all forms of Christian prayer, um, except speaking in tongues, which is kind of a a black sheep in the prayer family neurologically. (laughs) Not a black sheep pragmatically, but... It's just different in the brain than other forms of prayer. All prayer and meditation, including like Zen Buddhist meditation or, or, or secular mindfulness meditation, they're all going to strengthen the anterior cingulate cortex. They're all going to strengthen the prefrontal cortex. But, for example, it's only religious prayer that causes this characteristic lack of activity in the parietal lobe, your sense of space. That's not a good or bad thing. I just think it's interesting that there are some neurologically unique things to people who believe in God when they pray and meditate. That doesn't mean prayer and meditate is, Christian prayer is worse. It just means it's, it's different and I think interesting. Because I practice mindfulness meditation a lot. Um, but it doesn't, um, it makes me feel grounded and centered. But um, Christian prayer makes me feel connected and opened. Um, and I use weird language because when you meditate, you're creating brain states that are non-linguistic, so that it can be difficult to explain. Um, but I'm not saying either is better or worse, just that scientifically they are different. Looks like we have an online question. Yeah, so um, these two may be connected and they may not be. Okay. All right. Um, so the first one is, and you've, you've touched on it a little bit in, in certain aspects, but how would you see just generally as a Christian um, the, the value of belief versus the practice, so kind of the orthodoxy, orthopraxy, orthopraxy kind of idea? And maybe related to that is you talk a lot about being a mystic, and can you tell us a little bit about what that means? Those are super related, aren't they? Yeah. Um, I don't think over the long term there's a difference between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. I just I don't think there is. I think you, know, you can make like you can like a, a time frame, like a snapshot, mm-hmm. and someone's believe beliefs can be different than their actions. I think over time the two tend to drift toward each other. So I kind of feel like this is like how many angels could fit on a pinhead. Like well, we it's fun to talk about, but at the end of the day, I'm such a pragmatist that um, I care about orthodoxy to the degree that it impacts orthopraxy. And I think that um, pre-Pauline Christianity seemed to be very orthopraxy-focused, right? Jesus took these guys and said, come on! And then Paul, who I have a very complex relationship with, <laughs> comes along and says, you know, he starts talking about the, all these things you must, you must believe. Now, Jesus also had some, like, belief litmus tests, but they were comparatively fewer in number. Paul sounded like like Jesus, you click install, and then Paul gives you like terms and conditions, right? Like it's that kind of a dynamic. So why I'm a mystic, <laughs> that was a good one. I don't know where it came from. So I'm a mystic because I didn't believe in God. I had no orthodoxy. And yet, I had this moment where I'm standing on the beach and a God I don't believe in reaches out and touches me on the forehead and I have a mystical experience. And I have all kind of poetic language I try to use to describe that moment. None of it is what happened. That moment, I I can't put into words. It's not a set of beliefs. It's a thing that happened. And it it was that moment that took an atheist and made him practice the Christian faith without believing it. 
And belief came later, months later. Uh, I did a lot of obsessive nerd research on brain science and cosmology before I could grow comfortable with any ideas about God. But in the meantime, God and I just kept talking. So, you know, it's like if our faith is a gumbo, once they're in the pot, I don't really know you can separate them anymore, mm. right? Like there's no more like shrimp and sauce and whatever. It's all just gumbo now. And I, the only thing is for a delicious gumbo, you just need to have the ingredients in a, a healthy ratio. And every gumbo is different. Everybody can have a slightly different recipe and still come out with a delicious meal. But I talk about food a lot. Well, that, yeah, you had me at gumbo. Um, <laughs> but, but you also are, are, you know, you're making the recipe. And you said the belief didn't come till, till later. Mm -hmm. What was the thing that was added to the, to the recipe that, that brought that? Um... I need to know something. Mm. It wasn't sustainable to run on experience forever. Yeah. Because the experience fades in memory. And again, if I just sit there and rationally deconstruct it all the time, I take the feeling away from that experience and it becomes just a data point in the past. At some point, we have to have some ideas, some foundation, at least loosely, mm -hmm. to continue practicing the faith. Some way that it it uh, becomes a sense of our identity. Um, and so I, I think that's the importance of belief is the degree over time in which it glues to your identity and therefore your actions. That's what I mean, like they're inseparable. You know what I mean? It, it, it really, the way, the way we're driven, um, our ethic, uh, the way that we behave, um, is filtered through a lot of loops in the brain, and a lot of, the, of that goes through our sense of self, which is, is rooted in a part of the brain called the thalamus. Literally every decision you make, every signal you process, passes through the way you view yourself. So in that way, beliefs are essential. Um, so I guess for a while I just had a gumbo with no salt, I don't know, right, kind of right. bland. And you, you know, for a while the shrimp's good, but then at some point you need a little, a little bang. Something, something else in there. Yeah. You know, as you talked about brains and you talked about uh, men, men's brains and, and, and women's brains, a lot of what I've heard about brains over the years uh, has been about uh, growth and, and, and from a kid to, to an adult. And I think about a child's faith and an adult's faith and how often we get stuck in that child's faith. I, I think about my yeah. daughter when she was, man, she was seven. She, uh, she said, well, Dad, is the stories in the Bible real? She's mm. like, I get the Jesus stuff, but the talking snake thing? I mean, really? Yeah. I like, she's seven, eight years old, and she's like, the talking snake? I, she's like, because when I heard that, I said, no. And I'm like, I laughed, and I said, yeah, but tell me what that story means. And then that led to a different conversation. I think, how, what's going on with the brain in, in children, and how can we, as parents and, and people who love these kids, help them al along and in, in, in as their brain grows, so can their, their faith and be a part of that. There is some fascinating science to this, mm. like really interesting multi-decadal research. So children, very young children, can't understand things that don't have faces. Mm. Okay? Stick with me. So if you take a blank sheet of paper and you give it to a very young child and you ask them to draw God, guess what you get back? You get back a face. God has a face. Young children can't understand democracy. It means nothing to them. They can't understand law, but they can understand a mayor or a policeman. You see the difference? The abstraction can't exist at first. As children grow, if you ask them to draw a picture of God, he goes from a face to, like, usually a guy with a beard, okay? Thank you, patriarchy. Um, a guy with a beard, get a little bit older, a guy in a beard in some setting, typically on a cloud, in a castle, on a throne. As they grow preteen, teenage years, they start to include imagery specific to their faith, say a cross, they get a little bit older, 
interestingly enough, the face goes away, the imagery remains. You tracking with me? They get older, they keep expanding in faith, and the image falls away. And people who have very neurologically sophisticated understandings of God tend to be iconoclastic when you ask them to draw. They'll draw spirals or light or just you know something that denotes allness or wholeness. You can't get to the light without the face. And then we look at the Bible. It starts with a God who walked in a garden with people. And evil was represented by what? A serpent who spoke. And at earlier stages of human cultural development, that would have been a very appropriate way to describe a concept like good, evil, and God. And it remains a really effective way to explain God to children. The danger comes... When you make people stick neurologically to an idea of God that is not appropriate for them. So when I was 25 in my church and I was told, no, seriously, there was a snake and it talked. And that shows up in the science. People who self-identify as fundamentalists tend to use the same imagery for God as young children. See what I mean? And so there's your sticking point. So it does... It's not like in all these cases, we're talking about the infinite wonder and holiness and glory that we call God. In all cases, we're making a paper mache model of Mount Everest, right? So it's not that any model is more or less bad. This is true in physics. Like when you first start to learn about atomic theory, what do they tell you? There's a nucleus and there's electrons that spin around it, right? Just like like a moon orbiting a planet, and that's totally wrong. <laughs> that's not true at all, because then you learn that electrons can actually move from point A to point B without traveling the points in between them. They can teleport, and that's a more useful model of electrons to make other theories, except that's also totally wrong. Like, the more you learn about electrons, the more you realize you can't even describe electrons using language. Only math works. They're probabilistic wave functions that collapse when they interact with each other. Yeah, that doesn't really work well for a child learning physics. So what do we start with? Or, we start or the with child's dad. an electron <laughs> orbiting a nucleus. Because even though the model's not completely correct, it's useful and appropriate at the time. Yeah. And that's just electrons. So when we talk about God, it's essential that we use language that people are ready for at that time and we don't try to force them into the wrong understanding that doesn't work for their cultural context or their stage of neurological development. So like in every other aspect of raising these ch this child, you know, we don't move them too far along in other aspects of life. It, but we also do this with faith, but it, we tend to stop at a certain point. Yeah, stop. Or it's also better to try to like, like force your kids forward. Don't talk to your six-year-old about theodicy or the problem of evil or the morality of God, right? You're, you're just as much setting them up for failure as someone who tries to hold them back too far. Yeah. You've got to know your kids, and you've got to come. You've got to follow their leadership of what they're ready for and where they're going. Thanks. Well, we're getting, getting close, but then we do uh, another question in-house and then one online. So there's... Uh... Yeah, so I had a follow-up question to that. So... I, much like you, kind of went through the process of deconstructing and now kind of looking at a, a, a different sort of Christianity uh, similar to, to where you would identify as a Christian humanist. Um, how do you not have a superiority complex then, just like in light of that metaphor that you gave between lifespan psychology and the development and progressive revelation through the scriptures, I, I agree with that metaphor so much so that I, so I go to a conservative Christian school, I'm trying to be a pastor, um, and at this school, there's a lot of six-day creationist Ken Ham sort of folk. How do I not actually see myself as, as better? And this is kind of like the spiral dynamics thing. Sure. I'm sort of green. Ooh, inside baseball, love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Who's, who's heard of spiral dynamics? Show <laughs> okay, yeah, 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 yeah. So... 
Yeah, so I'm green. And like you said at the premise of that of that podcast, yeah. oh, this isn't a hierarchy, but the thing stacks uh, like right. one mm-hmm. over the other. I get, and we'll I don't know down. now, but I'm, <laughs> <laughs> how do I not have a superiority complex? So first of all, when everyone learns a new thing about God, they're convinced they've learned the right thing about God. And so they come back and they tell everybody, you don't understand, I saw the lights. That's how reformations happen. That's how religious civil wars happen. That's how families can't talk at Thanksgiving. Now, without, if you want to learn more about spiral dynamics, we did an episode on it. Basically, what it's acting is when your views about God have changed and opened you in some new way to greater love, greater mercy, greater forgiveness, greater contentment than you had before, how do you not feel like you have it more figured out than those knuckle-draggers that haven't seen what you've seen? Right? <laughs> That's, that's the question. And, uh, like, what's better, like a space shuttle or a station wagon? If you think a space shuttle is better, raise your hand. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you, NASA nerds. If you think a station wagon is better, raise your hand. Thank pop, you. So pop, most people went, this is a ridiculous question. <laughs> <laughs> like, better for what? I'm not taking Columbia to get groceries, <laughs> right? But my sob is not going to the space station. So in some way, these things can't be compared. They just have different advantages and disadvantages. So it is with faith. Guess what? When disaster strikes, you've got to raise a lot of money for those people who are starving. You've got to put, put boots on the ground to help the hurt. Who gets there first? conservative evangelicals. You know why? You snap, they march. They have a, a psychosocial model based on cohesion, and you convince them it's in the Bible, and they will move mountains. You show them a verse that says the poor, the orphan, and the widow, and an orphanage is paid for and built in six months. You go to a progressive mainline church, and suddenly all different viewpoints are welcome, and people feel safe and known and included, and you cannot get anything done. (laughs) Because it requires absolute consensus. The most important thing to know, when God opens your eyes to something more powerful than you've ever known before, is that moment was for you in that moment. That that is what you needed. And it's great to, out of love and gratitude, Share that with other people in a way that lifts them up, in a way that makes them feel closer to God. But if that sense of superiority comes in, that's, that's more from your ego than from God, I think. That's more from your need to feel powerful than your need to help others. The fact is, I realize many things I feel so strongly about right now, in a couple years, are going to seem really stupid to me. And so I constantly remind myself that not only have I not arrived, I never will. I'm on a journey, but I'm not actually worried about the destination. I'm worried about walking with this rabbi, first century rabbi. I'm a weird guy. I like, I'm really obsessed with a first century rabbi. And I just, I hold on to that. You can make a great case that I'm weird and that uh, there's not always great reasons for me to do so, but somehow, when I follow in the footsteps of not only this man, but the church that walked behind him, my heart, my soul, whatever language you want to use is opened in some way. And I find that I have more compassion for others, that I mourn with those who mourn, I weep with those who weep, and my comfortability with injustice and suffering really, really goes down, and I feel like I have to do something about it, so I'm okay just rolling with it. Looks like we have time for, what you say, two more questions, and uh, yeah, I wish we could go all night. Um, get you another bottle of water, we'll be set. Um, but I want to... We go all night, I need a different kind of bottle. <laughs> there it is, there it is. 
But it uh, looks like uh, you guys might have a question online, and then there's uh, one more question in the back. But we'll go, go to our online audience here. Yeah, so um, I think the, the maybe the one that I want to grab here the, for the last online one is, was what are your thoughts on the God of the Gaps? Oh, yeah, all right. More inside baseball. The God of the Gaps is an idea put forth by skeptics that Christians tend to call God whatever science hasn't explained yet. So at one point we thought that the earth was the center of the universe because God made the earth special, had the Garden of Eden on it. And then we figured out, we made telescopes and got better at math, and we figured out that the earth orbited the sun and that the sun's the center of the universe. And we figured out, no, actually the sun's just kind of drifting in a galaxy that has its own center. And then we figured out, like, oh, there's no center. And then we figured out, oh, actually everything's the center. And that's kind of been the progression. That's, that's a pretty decent five-second primer on cosmology. And, <laughs> um, and in that, we kept retreating what God was responsible for. He said, okay, well, God made these rules that govern the orbits of the planet. He's not, like, literally, like, like it's a model airplane going with the Earth, right? I don't do the God of the Gaps thing at all. Um, God is not what I don't know. If you look at my axiom, what I do know is all up in there, right? Uh, so when I look at science, I'm looking, I'm learning just as much about the nature and the character from God as physics as I do from the Bible. These are all things that point to the ground of being the source of all. And if that God doesn't exist, uh, nothing exists. So if some atheist wants to call what I call God the cosmos, hey man, if that helps you sleep at night, go for it. That'd bother me a bit. Um, but I, it's not, I, I, I agree the God of the gaps is a problem. I don't agree that holding on to mystery and awe is a God of the gaps thing. Uh, good science does the same thing. Science doesn't advance unless people are amazed by the universe and wonder what's possible within it. And I'm just taking that same sense of awe and just looking at it with a little, little different lens, that's all. One more in the back. I was going to ask. Oh, got out of the gap. So thanks, online guy. Um, so I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to ask another question. Um, I've really appreciated your podcast, and I you mentioned at the beginning you get this question a lot, but I really appreciate your answer on just how you talk with somebody who may be angry with you or completely disagrees with you. How you find common ground and what that conversation looks like. Maybe not a Thanksgiving dinner conversation. God, that's a little charged. But, um, you know, what that conversation might look like for you. And my second question is, would you like to get a beer later? I'm buying. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, there'll probably be some of that going around. Second question. Um, first question, how do you have the difficult conversations? I have found life gets easier if you don't try to control other people. I think so much stress in Western societies is just based on the fact we want to control other people. We want to control what they think about us. We want to control what they believe about the universe. We want to control their actions. And in doing that, we just try to like make ourselves God. And I am just very aware of the fact that I am not God. I can't, I can't make universes. I certainly didn't make this one unless it was a heck of a bender and I forgot. Um, I'm not God. And because of that, my goal is not to change anyone's mind about anything. If somebody's really angry about what I say, I say, you know what? I could be wrong. I make most of this stuff up after I read an article. It's not, I'm not like a guru. Like all the time when people, uh, ascribe me some guruhood, that makes me very uncomfortable I am literally a person that tells other people how I sleep at night, and if that's helpful to you, awesome. <laughs> so I think a little shift in frame. When I have conversations with people, I don't have an end state that I imagine. When I talk to someone who doesn't believe in God, it happens a lot. Hey, my mom said if I talk to you, I can get the Xbox back. Um, <laughs> I don't have like the, the goalpost of 
this person's going to believe it God at the end of the conversation. I just listen to their story. And if they have questions for me, I answer them. If they want to hear my perspective, I offer it. But I'm not in a position of trying to tell people how to live their lives. That does not mean I'm morally passive. I will speak out about actions that harm other people. If you follow me on Twitter, you will hear a lot about racial equality because I see a situation today in, in our country where a lot of people don't get a fair shake, right? So I speak out about that. But I always talk about actions and ideas. And I never attack people. I always hold grace toward other people. And I never forget a lot of times the people who disagree with me literally believe what I believe like six years ago. So how can I like decide all of a sudden I've got it figured out and they're an idiot. If they're an idiot, I'm an idiot. Because I used to believe the same thing. So I think it's as simple as grace and just surrendering the need to control other people. And believe me, you're a homo sapien, you're a control freak. <laughs> We're all control freaks. Uh, we have to consciously become aware of our need to control other people, to control our circumstances. And the funny thing is, when you actually completely surrender your life to God, which you can do for about five nanoseconds at a time, life's good. All the worry that your orbital frontal cortex is blasting in your name like the worst episode of CNN NewsHour goes away, and you can actually be present and experience the awe and wonder that I believe you were created to experience. And that only comes when you completely surrender your need to be God. That's a great place to land the plane. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you. This is a conversation that feels like it could go on and it almost looked like Chris was having a, an extra question to throw in. Um, oh man, look what... So it's, they it's, already turned your mic off. Think yeah. of it, it's, it's a bonus question. Bonus. Right? So uh, myself and anyone who's ever listened to your podcast and Jeb from Tallahassee <laughs> want to know why your theme song is so awesome. <laughs> yes. Jeb from Tallahassee wrote the theme song. And, uh, so here, here's the thing. So... Um, I, didn't, I never actually had an idea to have a podcast. So, uh, people on Twitter who listen to Liturgist Podcast ask for more science stuff on the Liturgist Podcast. And if we put any more science on the Liturgist Podcast, it would be called the Science Podcast. There'd be no art or faith left. So I said, we can't do that. And so they said, why don't you start a podcast where you just like answer questions and uh, answer science questions like once a week. And I said, nobody would listen to that. Uh, and but someone tweeted I would, and then a bunch of people favorited that tweet. So I was like, "Well, would anyone listen to a podcast where I answered questions about science?" And that tweet became one of the most retweeted and favorited tweets I've ever posted. So I said, "Okay, if just the people that retweeted and, and favorited that tweet listen, it'd be worth like putting an hour a week <laughs> into recording a show. It takes way more than an hour. A week. Just an hour." <laughs> um, but so I like got this idea. I like made a logo and keynote on my computer myself, which is why our show's logo is so ugly. And uh, I built a website like that. And I, I called my friend Jeb and I said, listen, I need a theme song for the podcast because I'm going to launch it like really soon because I've already got 3,000 subscribers and no episodes. <laughs> and I said, but here's the thing. It's got to be really cheesy and it's got to make fun of me because I'm a college dropout that talks about science. So if anyone like <laughs> enters the show with the impression I think what I know I'm talking about, I'm doomed, which is why Jeb wrote and recorded and sent me a song in like 30 minutes <laughs> that says, you've got questions, he's got answers. Even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them, but he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. <laughs> so. 
after the, that theme song is so awesome because it perfectly describes my work, and no one can hear that and think this guy's trying to pretend to have a PhD. <laughs> Thanks, Jeb. So a couple things Jeb needs to know. After listening to that, it always ends up in my head, and one of the first things I'm hearing in my head in the morning is that earworm. So thank you, Jeb, from Tallahassee. People sing it to me in the airport. Oh, yeah. No, that's awesome. That's, and uh, also, we had a debate, my wife and I, at first, when we first started listening, if that was you singing. And so... That's Jeb, which well, is funny. If you listen to that, like, crooning voice, yeah. he's the size of a polar bear. Jeb. And so, like, he, you know, when he plays a guitar, it looks like a ukulele. <laughs> and, and he, but he's got a beautiful singing voice. Fantastic. If I sang it, it'd be very low. <laughs> well, we'd like to hear that. Uh, we'll be doing that at karaoke <laughs> later. Um, so good having you here. And, uh, you know, you were talking about the podcast. And if you're here or if you're watching online and you haven't subscribed to either Ask Science Mike or The Liturgist, you really, really need to. It's, it's been just a giant thing for me and for, for many of my friends who have also started listening. So we're really, really thankful for your work. And, and so thank you for that. And, and listen to these podcasts and, and, uh, and follow, follow them on Twitter. And my publisher would love if I mentioned that a year from now, there'll be a Science Mike book on shelves, like in retail stores you can buy. Sweet, sweet. So. Looking forward to it. Again, please share the good word about what we're doing here and about the liturgists and Ask Science Mike. And, uh, and just have a great night. Thanks again for joining us, and good night. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Wow. That was awesome. So I'm just, just because we've got, I've got a couple questions from live event that uh, we didn't get to, so I'd just love to run through a couple of those if we can. Um, the first one, and I think maybe the most important one, why do I always get the wobbly wheel on my shopping cart? <laughs> So if you're looking at that question scientifically, the first thing we would do is you would go to um, multiple grocery stores in different locations, and you would assess the shopping carts, and you would find out what percentage of shopping carts had wobbly wheels on average. And you might find that some really high percentage of shopping carts have wobbly wheels, and that everyone is getting shopping carts with wobbly wheels. That'd be one explanation. The other thing that could be happening, let's say it's, it's a lower percentage, it's 10, 15% of shopping carts have wobbly wheels. Your brain doesn't remember, doesn't ascribe importance to when you get the normal shopping cart. If you have a mental image that you're the person that gets wobbly wheels, when you get a shopping cart that doesn't have it, your brain is going to filter that out because it subverts your narrative. But it's going to get reinforced through confirmation bias every time you get a wobbly-wheeled <laughs> shopping cart. Um, and that's, it's, you know, it's kind of disappointing how easy our brains are to trick that way. Um, but confir confirmation bias is a huge, huge thing that scientists have to work against when they do their work. It's why we have to gather so much data. It's why we have to look for statistical correlations. Because the human brain loves anecdotes. And in tribal societies, anecdotes are a pretty good way to figure out how to find food and not get eaten by other things. Uh, they're less effective at dealing with very large data sets or drawing conclusions like wobbly-wheeled shopping carts. <laughs> that's awesome. Is that all right? Yeah, that's great. So basically, I get the wobbly wheel because I think I get the wobbly wheel. Either that, Either that or, or there's a lot there's of just them. a lot of wobbly yeah. wheels. <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, let's take this a different direction. Um, so what steps and what things would you recommend for uh, maybe a church community and maybe parents of kids to foster a safe environment for doubt? The least important thing to do is to correct someone's thinking, to point them at scripture, um, all your first instincts are probably wrong. Hmm. The most important thing to do is give someone a hug. Uh, to tell them that they're secure in their relationship with you. That it doesn't matter what you believe about God. You love that person for who they are. And if you do have a goal of winning someone back to faith... dragging them to church 
or debating the Bible is pretty much the worst thing you can do. So I had a pastor uh, walk up to me after an event once, and he said his son didn't believe anymore and would not come to church. And so what are his problems with faith? And he said, he says that we're all hypocrites and we don't do anything that we say we follow Jesus, but Jesus was about helping the poor. And he says he cares more about helping the poor than going to church. And I said, okay, what are you doing Saturday morning? And he said, why? I said, maybe the two of you should go to a homeless shelter together. And maybe you should not even mention Jesus at all. You should just show him what it's like to follow Jesus. Like, address his criticism not with words, but with actions. Mm-hmm. And I just, I feel really strongly, I've had this, I'm a pretty lackluster guy. Um, there's nothing amazing about me. And yet I have all these people all over the country that respond to my work and somehow are drawn to God by it. And I think it's just because um, I love people and I don't like to see people suffer. And it's, it's that simple. It's really that simple. Um, so when, you know, people ask me to talk to someone who doubts, I don't have like my five point sales program that convince them God is real. I sit down and I hear their story and I say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can totally understand why you don't believe in God. And then I'm done. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, But that approach somehow seems to open a conversation that keeps going. Um, So, you know, listen and bring the gospel to life with dirt on your hands. Hmm. We just heard... uh or just watched a a video clip with Brene Brown the other day. And she said, God is love. It's that simple. And it's that complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Brene Brown, man. (laughs) What, what other questions do we have? uh, Chris, Uh, just someone who, who was watching uh, the live event uh, said that they recently deconstructed and reconstructed their faith, but they still have a hang up in going to church. They want to know what's going on with them. That makes that still a challenge. (laughs) So when you reconstruct, a lot of people reconstruct and they find that they're fascinated with a loving God. They're fascinated with um, a Jesus who spoke radically of good actions for humanity. Um, And they're less on board with, you know, uh, a really segregated hour on Sunday morning. (laughs) Okay, good. That's a good instinct. You don't have to go to a church you hate. Um, See if there are other churches in your area that might be smaller, might be a little harder to find, that have more open views. Uh, If there aren't, um, do you know anyone in your life, and I mean anyone who has the same kind of urging and same kind of leaning, um, get a pizza and sit together and talk about your faith experience and the two of you may find a third person and then a fifth and then a seventh and then you know you get to 10 or 12 people and that might be your church you know great um if you can't find the community you need i'm guessing there's a lot of people in your community that can't find the community you need and you might need to just make it Um, but the other thing is when we started looking for a church, we had all these criteria. Um, we wanted to make sure that it was close to our house, had a great children's program. We built this like impossible shopping list. And so we went to churches and none of them hit all of our 358 points <laughs> of what would make a good church. So I think it's also important to boil down what actually genuinely is necessary for you to find a church you can grow in. And I, for me, that recipe is pretty simple. The church needs to be safe. People aren't going to be con- um, attacked for their identity, whatever their identity is. They're going to be accepted and affirmed as they are. And they are going to be challenged to grow into who they could be 
And that third point's important because there's not a pre-existing mold for what success looks like. Um, and when we shifted the frame more that way, then we found a church that really worked for us. We stopped worrying about you know, how many square feet are in the children's classrooms <laughs> and looked more for, is this a place where we can grow and flourish and help others do the same? Hmm. Um, and that, uh, boy, that, that makes it way easier to make a decision to find a place. Um, you're, and if your hang-up is because you've been hurt, go to therapy. Like, go to therapy, deal with the trauma, grieve that pain, and start to recover. Because until you do, you're going to show up at your new church with a big old suitcase full of hurt. And you may end up missing out on a community that would have been good for you because you don't react to it. You react to your past. Mm. Cannot say enough if you have been deeply hurt it is okay it is not just okay it is good to talk to a professional who deals with grief and trauma cool i think i've got one more of those questions that we didn't get to uh at the live event um and i'm not sure exactly what this person's getting at so i'm just going to read you their their sentence and see what you think about it so they said i sometimes struggle with my beliefs in god's law so I believe in God of grace and forgiveness, but sometimes get really wrapped up in wondering what God thinks about what I'm doing. Oh, man. Um, if you don't mind profanity, go listen to episode 201 of You Made It Weird with Pete Holmes. Great episode. Pete and I dug into that um, <laughs> a little bit with some examples I'm not even going to use on this show. Um, Neurologically speaking, there are two models of God, and if you're worried about how God is going to react to what you're doing, that means you're probably drifting towards the God of wrath. You're seeing God's primary character as being someone who might smite you if you mess up or judge you when you fail. Um, the God I see revealed in the Gospels and in the New Testament is a God who seemed to have tremendous patience or people who were on a journey to follow. In fact, unless I'm mistaken, I can't find a single case in the Gospels wherein Jesus rebukes the crowd or rebukes um, non-religious people. The rebukes of Jesus were reserved for people who assumed that they had arrived and that they had it figured out or who are too self-centered to serve others. So sometimes we need to be self-critical. Um, if I'm taking actions that harm other people, I actually should feel guilty. <laughs> That's a good thing to feel guilty when you're hurting other people through your actions, and that should motivate you to change. That's a healthy thing. But to feel shame based on your identity or who you are is not a healthy thing. It doesn't help modify your behavior. Um, and it does help you feel like God might be out to get you. Um, and in that case, I would say lean in and focus on and meditate and contemplate on this idea that God radically loves you, that God accepts you exactly as you are. And not only that, God created you and molded you into exactly who you are right now. There's nothing you have to do to be good with God. You're already good with God. And the reason it is God is inviting you through that security, through that love, and through that grace to feel safe enough to become who you could be. And I don't mean this in like some uh, popular spirituality way. I don't mean this as you will have that Mercedes. I mean that you have been gifted with the capacity to love others so much that it helps them heal as well. Um, and in doing so, that's why the church is called the body of Christ. So um, if you're dealing with shame issues, I say this a lot, it's time for therapy. Um, if you're convinced uh, God is judging you, You've probably been told in the past that God is judging you. And I'm telling you that 
God loves you and wants to not only heal you, but use you to heal others. One last question. Okay. And uh, we'll wrap things up. Uh, Besides your podcasts, which are fantastic, uh, Ask Science Mike and the Liturgists, what are a couple of books or resources that you would recommend for anyone experiencing a crisis of faith around science questions or doubt? If you wonder if it's just crazy and foolhardy to follow God, read How God Changes Your Brain by Andrew Newberg. That's a good one. Uh, if your primary hang-up is the Bible, read The Bible Tells Me So by Pete Enns. Uh, Pete's a friend of mine and uh, can really help you get past the modernist way we tend to view the scriptures. Um, if your problem is dealing with um, how the church relates to culture and where you might fit into it, Searching for Sunday by Rachel Held Evans is phenomenal. She's a friend of mine. And um, I just ugly cried reading that book. Um, <laughs> and then if uh, your problems with Christianity are the degree to which it is not uh, intersectional or inclusive, maybe God and a gay Christian by Matthew Vines, or maybe Between uh, the World and Me between by Tanisi Coates would help you with uh, race issues in America. Um, that'd probably be my mm-hmm. uh, go-to list. I mean, I'm a book guy. I could, I could throw <laughs> a lot of book recommendations down, but those are some of my my top shelf cool. favorites. Great. And and you have a book coming out uh, next year, September 2016. All right. Uh, there'll be a, a science Mike book on shelves. Awesome. That sounds good. Looking forward Great. to it. Mike, thank you so much yeah. for for being here, for being a part of uh, our community for. Uh, for a couple days here and uh and for teaching us tons of fun so, yeah, i really appreciate yeah. the opportunity Great. awesome thanks man. thanks